From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? You'll have heard at this point that uh, our friend Grant Williams isn't with us today. And of course, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody as we read the, the tensions on the border between Russia and Ukraine, then it's not likely that uh, 007 is going to be anywhere near this show in the next couple of weeks. Um, so uh, apologies for Mr. Williams, but uh, we'll bash on and I think it's going to be a great show today. It's uh, another version of the Pumpjack Data Works big interview. Uh, before we bring in the guest, uh, how are you, Giles? You're with me and uh, I'm glad for that. How's life? Well, Roger, I'm well. I've got the Christmas decorations up. I'm feeling quite festive. Um, Good. I've had quite a lot of mince pies already this year. Um, the wait's coming on. And um, I'm really excited about the show, I have to say. Good, 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 good. And how's life there in London uh, getting towards the end of the year? We're already starting to see the articles about what's coming up in 2022. How do you end this year looking at next year for, for the industry? It's going to be a big year, 2022. It really is, Roger. You know, all, all this year, uh, as the whole world, as we've been sort of dealing with um, the ramifications of covid and what that means for the industry and that means uncertainty we've had an olympic games that kind of limped through and was kind of it did what it needed to do in in the circumstances sports made a welcome return and and shown it to be such a, a sort of backbone and foundation stone for society um for societies around the world and yet here we are at the tail end of 21 and covid is new strains are coming travel restrictions are coming, uncertainty looms, which takes us into this mega year of 2022 with another extraordinarily another Olympic Games just coming around the corner um, mm -hmm. in, in China and with all of the political ramifications yeah. that that throws up. We've got um, the, the World Cup and the odds... A Winter World Cup. A, a Winter World Cup and the ramifications of that. So I, the good news is for our, our listeners is that I don't think we're going to go stale on our show next year. I think there's going to be plenty to discuss, but it feels a bit odd. And I think a lot of the world are probably looking forward to a sort of seasonal Christmas tide truce, maybe, and just everyone can suck in some energy and, and fight the good fight next year. That is true, although um, we should know a little bit that there is a big, big issue going on in sport just now that I think is going to be causing a lot, well, a lot of people to maybe have their Christmas preparations disturbed, which is the tender for the UEFA broadcast rights, which for forever and a day since I was a wee lad were uh, given automatically to team marketing and now have been put out to tender and, and the great and the good, four of the mega in, uh, agencies have bid for them. And it will be fascinating to see if that actually changes anything, given all the, the politics that UEFA are in the middle of just now. Uh, that's one for the industry to watch. And uh, I think that's going to be a really, really interesting start to the new year. Yeah, well, politics abound. And I think the politics coupled with the swirl of uncertainty, coupled with this, the geopolitical sort of tectonic plates, it's um, 2022, I think, could be an extraordinary year yeah i think i may even get out to qatar i was kind of like invited to to go out there and have a little look by the people that are, are, are organizing the world cup i'll probably do that early in the new year and you know see if we can get the main man on on are you not entertained uh, because why wouldn't he do that absolutely well i look forward to that if you can get him on what a coup that would be yeah so uh, without further ado, uh, Captain, tell us a little bit about what is going to be an amazing show today. Yeah, well, thanks, Roger. And I'm really delighted to welcome back Jerry Cardinal um, back onto the show, as Roger says, for our 
regular listeners, you may remember Jerry joined us in the show about, I think it was 18 months ago, Rog. Yeah. And it was when Redbird Capital, the business he founded in, in 2013, had just taken on Toulouse Football Club. So we, at that time, we had a brilliant hour talking all things about sports finance, about what might be in the future, about European football, the S network that he owns and his take, which was, after all, in the middle of COVID, of what the opportunity for finance and sport actually is. And I think it was uh, it was eye-opening for a lot of people to hear from a true financier, a proper global uh, guy who is not just involved in sport, but in all sorts of industries. Well, bloody hell, he wasn't just talking a good game. And he and his team have been quite busy since he last came on the show. Um, the creation of Red Bull Acquisition Corp, Redbird FC and the investments into Fenway Sports Group and therefore the mighty Liverpool Football Club, the Rajasthan Royals, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and most recently, um, this major investment, which I know you will want to get into, Rog, um, into India with Dream Sports. Yeah, yeah, great one, that. We had such a, a positive response last time he was on, so we thought it would be a good way to close what has been an extraordinary year by inviting him back. Jerry, how very good to have you back on the show. Welcome. Great to be back. Well, as I said, um, we've lost Grant Williams temporarily. Some would say he's a, a secret agent. We're not entirely sure where he is, so you're going to have to make do with with Roger and I. Um and, and the thing is, Jerry, when we um, have a guest on the show, we tend to have a little bit of a WhatsApp thing and we, we kind of collate ideas. You know, we're unscripted, but we just like to know where we're going. And I have to tell you that Roger has been like a Scottish terrier champing at the bay. I always do my prep, <laughs> never unprepared, never unprepared. He is just, he's straining at the leash. But No, not at all, not no. at all. I'm going to listen more than I'll be speaking today. This is a This is a real treat for us. This is somebody who's investing capital. Uh, he's got choices about where he can invest it, and we should learn a lot about his process, about how he's doing that and what he's deciding is worth his money and what isn't. Well, let's give you a nice gentle half volley, Jerry, just to, to kick you off. Since we met in July 2020, it was such a big moment for our podcast. You really have been busy investing um, in fact, that is the understatement of the year. Just share with us a little bit, particularly since that time, about how in your, your great team select the criteria for for that potential investment in the sport. And, well, and what are the areas that you kind of look at? Because you really have been busy. Sure. Look, I mean, a lot's happened uh, in the 18 months or so uh, since we last connected. And I don't need to tell any of your listeners that, uh, you know, COVID really was you know, a, a challenge for everyone globally, for someone who invests in sports and live event entertainment, I'd say COVID, you know, was, was at least theoretically extremely challenging, you know, and we were living it day in, day out. I'll never forget when the, you know, the NBA, you know, canceled their games. I think it was March around the middle of March. And, you know, as someone who has invested in sports uh, for two decades, you know, I've always fundamentally believed in the must-carry premium value of that content. And in a world that has increasingly been dislocated by technology, and, and I don't use that word dislocated in a pejorative sense, I'd say, you know, things evolve. But there's no doubt that technology and the way fans consume, can consume, and want to consume that kind of live event content, that's all been uh, evolving and, and and COVID really was one of the first times I think in, in in a long time that there could have been a challenge to the whole sports live event ecosystem and it was a challenge but look what happened uh, you know we you know the sports got through it and I think if anything silver lining uh, is that people it reminded people how much they appreciate that live event that that ir irreplaceable content and that irreplaceable dynamic of getting people together in an arena or a stadium uh, in, a, in a very unscripted form of entertainment that you just can't get anywhere else. And so, you know, we made a decision, uh, going back to your question, to really lean into our investment business during this incredibly turbulent period. And I'd say we're, we're pretty uh, happy and, and proud of what we've been able to accomplish. I would tell you guys that one of the great themes that that's been going on in my mind that COVID really re-emphasized for me 
is this old notion that content is king. And I would tell you in the two decades to almost uh, three decades that I've been doing this, that's, there's always been that notion. As someone who's, you know, I've always been fascinated with intellectual property. I've always been interested in investing in media and entertainment and then sports. Everyone's always said that content is king. And I would tell you, it's only recently that I think content finally has become king. What's so fascinating about sports is it's sports coming out of COVID, you not only got the appreciation for sports, but you also are now starting to see with everything that's going on in all of our various societies and all of our countries, you're seeing an important role that sports can play in the cultural fabric of these countries and societies. So there's so much there. Uh, and I'd say our, our investment activity over the last 18 months through all of this, it really was a function of the continuum that we bring of, you know, two and a half decades of doing this and having the conviction that we would be able to ride through it and actually, you know, put a lot of good money to work in the most turbulent period that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, it, de- it definitely has been turbulent, Jerry. I listened back to the last podcast and, and, and I just thought it was amazing, the stuff you were saying. And I would like to try and link to that because there were some great topics there. One of the things we talked about the last time was what we thought, what, what I was saying was perhaps the start of a, a SPAC uh, bubble uh, or indeed a valuation bubble in general. I think, you know, in the last 18 months, we probably have seen SPACs blow up that bubble and perhaps uh, that that to be uh, burst a little bit. And, and then, you know, look at the betting companies and the data betting companies like Genius, like all, like Penn, everything like that. Some of them are, are, are off 50%. As a financier, turbulent is the word, uh, volatility is the word. And you and I know that the great skill as a financier is the management of volatility. Tell us a little bit about how you guys are looking at this crazy time and managing to make your bets and size your portfolio. Give people an idea about how somebody does that in this sector. Well, look, I think it's important to have multiple tools in your toolbox. And, you know, we, uh, participated in the SPAC market with our Red Ball Acquisition Corp. And, you know, I looked at that as a legitimate tool in our entire investing arsenal. And, you know, one of the, the first thing you led with, Roger, was, you know, the volatility in that SPAC market. I think the SPAC thing is a very legitimate product. And I'm a big student of evolution. And I really believe that the, the best investors are the ones who invest over multi-year continuums. And so, you, you know, and particularly in sports, I would tell you, you really need to have multi-decades of experience for you to continue to keep pace with all these changes that we've talked about. You know, I would tell you the SPAC market really is the great democratization of capitalism. You know, you, you, a lot of people are forming capital. Question, you know, should all of them be forming capital? Uh, a lot of companies are going public that may be too early to go public. You know, the SPAC product is is really a merger of a blank check company and a company. Uh, And so you have the ability to use projections. And one of the things that may have led to is companies that might not be quite ready for the public markets going public uh, because you can use projections where in a traditional IPO process, you can't. So, you know, and and, and there's this, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there, but for me, I pull myself away from that. And it doesn't really, for me, it's, it's about multiple uh, options in the way we invest suited to the investment. And so all this other stuff is noise. What I will comment on, uh, particularly since you guys are very focused on sports and, and the live event, entertainment ecosystem, you know, there's a tremendous amount of capital sloshing around in general, uh, yep. this back commentary, tremendous amount of it going into sports. Uh, yep. And I would just strike a note of caution there. This happens all the time. But I think those of us who have been investing for a long period of time, you know, we should all be sober about it. There's a lot of valuation escalation. Uh, and as I said to you guys in our last discussion, my career investing in sports has been pretty simple. You know, in, in you've had this phenomenon where you've had this great escalation in these valuations across sports, but really none of the the infrastructure and the businesses and the people around it have necessarily kept pace with that incredible escalation. And what we do is we come into that gap with capital and we close it. And in the process of closing it, we create terminal value businesses in partnership with rights holders. And it's a win-win. It's a win-win for the rights holder. 
uh, and it's a win-win uh, for us and our and our investors. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed since the very first investment I ever did back in 2001 with the New York Yankees and creating the S network. And it's the same all the way through to today in some of the investments that that we're making. We'll leave the Yes Network for later, but as a corporate financier myself, I want to ask a supplementary there. You and I know, Jerry, that capital has got a cost, and I would I would argue that there's at least a generation, 20 years, 25 years, of operators that know nothing apart from very low interest rates. We are now starting to see the rise in inflation. Uh, they're starting to drop the term transient, and you and I know that when inflation rises, interest rates normally aren't that far behind. So my big question for you regarding sport in general is, what the hell happens to this sector if we go back to 4 and 5% interest rates? What happens to valuations? Well, look, first of all, in any sector where everything keeps going up and more money is pouring in because of that, that very castle notion that it's always going to keep going up, that, that's pretty self-fulfilling, right? I mean, that's just anti-Darwinian and that's just uh, against the laws of physics. So things will change. Uh, I frankly look at a rising interest rate environment like like we, we just like the COVID environment it is just another set of macro parameters that we need to navigate through. If anything, uh, you know, that kind of changing uh, cost environment will will temper a little bit this euphoria that we've been dealing with. And you're absolutely right. I mean, today. I mean, most young people getting into investing, you know, they haven't really experienced anything other than the pandemic. They haven't really experienced, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of these dislocations. And in sports, you know, you've seen this. This there's definitely an underlying, you know, zeitgeist in sports where, you know, people look at it and they compare it to the S and P 500. They compare it to the public stock markets over a decade, and they and they look at these valuations constantly going up. And there's not a tremendous amount of rigor around that. You know, I mean, it's no. what's interesting in America, you know, I mean, Forbes magazine really is the equity research of sports. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, credit to them for sure. Uh, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of capital pouring into this industry, very similar to other corporate industries. But those corporate other corporate industries, they've got, you know, investment banks and, and Wall Street firms and equity research firms that are that are writing on on these investments and these companies and these sectors and these trends. You don't really have that in sports. Apart from Redbird. Well, look, I mean, you know, if, if you took the library of all of our, you know, work uh, and, you know, all the investing uh, writing work that we do internally, you know, there is a form of that. And that's why I said to you, you know, the continuum that I, the one word I would emphasize in, in the stuff that we do is a continuum. And I think it's true of all investing, but particularly if something as nuanced as sports, where, you know, sports itself is a very closed ecosystem. I, I think it's very challenging. You're very challenged if, for you to just show up and start investing in sports. I mean, sure anybody yeah. can write a big check. But to build companies and to be with the right partners and rights holders and to make a positive impact on the ecosystem, you can't just you know show up. You have to have been involved in apprenticing and doing it over a long period of time. And I've been so fortunate in my career to have apprenticed with some of the best rights holders you know around the world in sport. And and I take that very seriously. Uh, and so the answer to the question ultimately is, yeah, we're going to go into uh, a a different cost environment on a macro basis. We just came out of, uh, you know, this pandemic. Um, and I, I think that that's going to create tremendous opportunities. I don't I don't mm -hmm. worry about that at all. I look at it as opportunities. Jerry, when we when we last spoke, we we talked a lot about France. You just done the Toulouse deal, and I imagine that your uh, familiarity with French cuisine, particularly Toulousaine cuisine, was uh, was good. The Cassoulet, particularly. Um, since then, you've uh, you you invested in Rajasthan Royals and Dream Eleven, and India has become a focus, which is clearly intriguing, clearly a huge market. First question is, how's your knowledge of cricket, and are you genning up quickly? Did your Oxford days help? Great question. Uh, yes, to a degree. Uh, you know, I think uh, I am very interested in cricket. I love our investment in the Rajasthan Royals. Uh, we did that through, um, you know, our, our relationship with Manoj Madal, who is really you know, a lot of credit goes to him in terms of what he's been able to do with that organization. Uh, and, you know, look, we were we were relatively early in 
you know, our kind of capital coming into the Indian Premier League. Rajasthan Royals is really only one of eight IPL cricket clubs. And even though it was a little bit of a departure from what we've done before, you know, we saw a really unique opportunity to invest in a league where every team is profitable and the matches are the most valuable driver of media rights in India. And then, you know, we got to know Dream Sports, which is an Indian sports technology company. Its principal brand is Dream 11, which is the leading daily fantasy sports platform in India. Uh, and it offers sports-based fantasy games across cricket and 10 other sports, you know, with different contest types and large prize pools, et cetera. And so we definitely at Redbird view India as one of the most attractive and fastest growing international sports markets. And we're going to do everything we can to continue to support that those investments as well as find other opportunities there. And has that been one of the, the great joys for you as, as the, the business has evolved, as there you are getting involved in, in different sports and different territories? We talked about global sport. That seems to be coming um, to fulfillment for, for Redbird. Is that something that you, you want to keep pushing on with? Yeah, you know, Giles, I, I don't, I, I never really thought of it, even though it's so apparent that if, as, as someone based in the United States to invest in India, you can't get much more global than that. But for me, it's it's not about that. It's 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 the same sports and live event entertainment have the same uh, impact and premium place in societies and, and countries around the world. It's the same thing. There's more than enough for us to do in North America. I am not actively looking to go outside of North America. But, you know, given what we do, some of these opportunities kind of find us. And, you know, if you just just if you just look at cricket in India, I think that India is 30% of Disney Plus's subscribers globally. Now, just just think about that. I mean, that's that's a tremendous statistic. And then when you start to look at in, everything that we do over here, but then you apply it through the lens of India, where you can reach 400 million viewers and single cricket matches have up to 200 million viewers. Uh, you know, you start to realize that, you know, if there are learnings and best practices and you subscribe to my view of a continuum that we have over here that we can bring to an environment like that, well, that's a win-win. And so that's what we're going to look to do. Yeah, on, on Dream Sports, which I think is an absolutely fascinating deal for a, a whole lot of different reasons. It's about, you know, that huge valuation. I think it's $8 billion. Is that based on the audience, the... 180 million or, or is it based on a play on cricket is it a play on India uh, or and, and here's here's my question Jerry are you going to use that almost as your VC vehicle to to, to get into early stage sport tech uh, do you see yourself getting actively involved through them yeah great question uh, we're already doing uh, earlier stage investing in sports and so I would say our investment in dream 11 is is just a, a byproduct of that activity. But again, I look at these things fluidly, you know, in the same way we had that discussion on the SPACs as a tool in the toolbox. Our, our expertise in sports means that we should be able to look at the entire value chain of an investment team, a league, uh, from, from startup to de novo investments all the way through to much later stage. The Dream 11 investment, you know, that valuation, to answer your question, is a function of a growing middle class where smartphone penetration is at 65%, where you know you're, they're looking to add over 200 million smartphone users in the next five years, uh, and it's as much a bet it's as much of a bet on on the Indian macro economic yep. dynamic as it is on cricket for sure. And the love of, sure. and the love of you know again it's the you know India is the largest cumulative global audience of any sport and and, and in. Cricket represents that, uh, represents a huge opportunity, and it's just those numbers are staggering. Jerry, as the, as the world changes and, and audiences and the profiles of audiences shift, how, how important when you're looking at investments, how important is diversity of ownership of sports and media businesses in terms of the people you interact with? Is that a, is that a major consideration? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very important. It's very important because it's the right thing to do. It's very important. Uh, I mean, I think it's been pretty much proven out that the more diverse your partners are and the more diverse groups you can put capital behind, the better everyone is. It, it rises the tide for everyone. Uh, and I'm a huge believer in that. You know, when I was at Goldman Sachs, you know, Goldman Sachs' philanthropy 
was about 10,000 women and 10,000 small businesses. You know, Goldman Sachs believed very early on in microfinancing, you know, women entrepreneurs in their various societies and countries. And there's a tremendous amount of research that Goldman Sachs did showing that, you know, the more empowerment you give to women entrepreneurs and business leaders in their societies, the more GDP growth and GDP per capita growth goes up. So I think the analytics speak for themselves. You know, one of the things I'm really proud of in the stuff that we've been doing is we haven't lost sight of that. And if anything, we've taken the baton a bit and we're trying to move it forward. You know, we bought the XFL, the Spring League football, a year ago, a little over maybe a year and a half ago with Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, everyone knows Dwayne, obviously, uh, who's just a tremendous powerhouse globally. I'm proud to say that you know, not only do we now have a diverse owner of a sports league in America, which has never happened before in Dwayne, but also with Danny, we have the first woman, let alone diverse woman, to own a sports league in America uh, and perhaps globally. That's tremendous. That's progress. Uh, when you look at our investment in uh, the Spring Hill Company with LeBron James and Maverick Carter, those guys are all about empowerment and moving the ball forward on diversity. They live it. And, you know, they are so legitimate and authentic that when we looked at the Spring Hill Company, you know, really, what, what, you know, and I've known Maverick for 10 years, uh, I knew that what we were investing in wasn't just a typical content company. Uh, together, we call it a culture company. And so that's what I said, you know, as I said to you earlier, I think you're going to start to see one of the real positives here that's so fascinating to me is you're going to start to see the convergence of sport and culture where sport's going to take on, you know, a much more uh, important role in society in advancing some of these causes and these issues in a very positive way. And if our kind of responsible capitalism can support that and we can help you know, bring capital and other growth opportunities to underrepresented, you know, subpopulations with partners like the ones I just articulated. That's a win for the entire ecosystem. It's a win for society and it goes way beyond sports. I was also interested and in, uh, maybe it has no no particular um, change to the business, but I was also interested that you moved out of New York and you moved down to Florida. Yeah. Just uh, was that strategic? Was that personal? Was it because there must be a reason you wouldn't have done it? New York represents everything it does, but you you don't need to be there and you're not. No, look, I mean, the, the world is is global. So virtually, you know, another, you know, ramification of COVID is it opened my eyes to uh, a more efficient work life balance. Uh, and I say it was really, really was more for personal reasons, you know, young family. And I'd say New York is going through some challenges right now, but we've, we've kept our, our headquarters in, in New York. Uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give for our people at Redbird. We now have close to 60 people at Redbird across the country. And I really wanted to federalize out different offices for people so that they could strike a better work-life balance for themselves and their families. And so we have people in New York that want to be in New York. We have people in our Greenwich office, in our Palm Beach office, in our Dallas office, in our Los Angeles office. Uh, we even have someone in Toronto and someone in Chicago. So you really try to make an effort to strike a, a work-life balance. It was nothing more than that. And, you know, technology and COVID showing us this. I mean, it was another, as I said, it was another eye-opener from COVID is that, you know, everyone sort of bought into a virtual, con you know, convening. And now we're going back to figuring out what the right balance is between virtual convenings and, and in-person convenings. Jerry, uh, you mentioned XFL there. Yeah. Uh, let's deal with that uh, quickly. We've seen NFL do an amazing new broadcast deal, uh, Megabucks. That's in many ways, you may, may not see it this way, but I think most people would say they're the incumbent and you're the challenger league. You know, if you if you did a kind of like SWAT on, on, on that situation, I think their weaknesses are that I think there's, they're, they're pricing out uh, a lot of fans to, to the NFL. They probably are aging in their demographic. Uh, the, the stats show that, certainly the TV audience. But they do seem a little bit to be getting their act together. You know, I, you said content before. Um, the Manning brothers and, and what they're doing there, 
he, here's the kind of like, you know, the, the layup for you to tell us how you as the challenger league there are going to make significant market share gains. Well, great question, but I, I'm going to adjust the premise of the question with one very important change, which is that we are not challenging the NFL. This is a spring football league, so we will kick off right after the Super Bowl. Uh, and um, if anything, I look at spring football as a ancillary partner uh, in some form to the NFL. Uh, the NFL is the 800-pound gorilla in America. Uh, the NFL is the dean of football. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for them and and everything that they, they that they are. In fact, you know, at Redbird, we created a business with them called On Location Experiences. Um, which which delivered these these high quality premium hospitality events and tickets to the Super Bowl, and then we did that for 150 other rights holders. That was a great experience with the NFL. Um, you know, prior to that, I had, I had created a company called Legends Hospitality with the New York Yankees and the Dallas Cowboys. So we know the NFL very well, and it was with that background that we made the decision to invest in the XFL with Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia really with a view that I'm a huge believer in football. I'm a huge believer in spring football. We did a lot of work and determined that there is a legitimate need in the marketplace for spring football, i.e. football after the Super Bowl in, in you know into the early part of the summer. Uh, and one of the things that's fascinating is that because we don't have a lot of legacy encumbrances and infrastructure such as the that the NFL has having you know grown up over many years, you know, we have an opportunity here to do things with the XFL that might be a little more difficult for an 800-pound gorilla to do. Mm -hmm. And so you should expect, and particularly, you know, with the partnership that we have with Dwayne and Danny, you should expect that we are going to innovate uh, across the fan experience, across the player experience, in, in, in the ways that we deliver this content. Uh, the ways that we experiment with maybe rules and, and player safety and health. We're going to experiment across all of these areas. And I think, you know, if we do it in a responsible way and we are coordinated with the NFL, once again, you know, the way I always think is it's got to be good for the entire ecosystem. And so I'm actually quite bullish on this. Um, but at the end of the day, make no mistake, if you see us coming together with someone like Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia, we're going to build an entertainment company rooted in legitimate football. And Dwayne has 420 million global social media followers. So one of the great things about this for the, the larger football ecosystem is we have a huge opportunity on the back of, you know, Dwayne's global presence to introduce more people around the world to football. And it's our job to make sure that we do it in a responsible way. Jerry, here's the kind of like follow up, slightly difficult one here, but it's a nice one. You will have seen how over time started with a similar kind of idea of a younger gen demographic, social media followers, and then all of a sudden they do overtime elite and they're starting to challenge college basketball. I'm not fully buying the idea that you two will sit nicely together. I think at some point you'll probably start eating into their ecosystem. Is that fair? No. No, it's, it's interesting that it's interesting that you see it as a binary situation. Um, you know, I, I, again, I'm not a binary guy. I think in terms of Venn diagrams, I think it would be pretty crazy for someone like me to underwrite an investment thesis taking on the NFL. I mean, I've got there's more. I got a lot of things to do. Taking on the NFL, <laughs> taking on the NFL is not one of them. Um, but, but I have a tremendous respect for the NFL. I've worked with them. I've partnered with them. I know their owners. Uh, I know their their front office. They're 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 that that's a that's a phenomenal phenomenal ecosystem and organization. I'm not interested in taking them on. I'm interested in bringing football to more fans, younger fans, a different demographic of fans at a different time, you know, of the calendar, and to do it globally. And I'm and frankly, you know, I'm I'm talking to the NFL about all sorts of things that you know we understanding better what their priorities are and what would they like to be able to do and how can we have a relationship and that's that's just smart business. So. Okay. I don't okay. I'm not. I'm not laying a glove on you here at all on this one. It. So I'm going. I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on. I'll, I'll give. I'll give you that one. Uh, I, the last time we spoke, um, I rather cheekily said that I didn't think it was a great time to be investing in French football. 
I kind of think that probably was a reasonably good call given what happened with Media Pro and everything like that. But that's not the point I want to make because that's uh, that's easy to say given the last two years we've had. And I think you'll probably get promoted this year and, and, and you know, I see the coverage is good and, and you're doing good things. Here's my point. And again, it comes back to the original one about allocation of capital. My, my point is this. I see a lot of American guys American companies getting sucked into, that's the phrase I want to use, sucked into small team football in Europe. I'm thinking of the guys at Parma, the guys at Spezia, um, Paul Conway at Barnsley. And yeah, you're going to do great. Yeah, you'll make you know marginal gains. You might even make big gains. But Jerry, is it really worth it when there's so many big things to go for that you have to grind it out and it's such a, a time suck and an emotion suck? Is it really worth it? Good question. Uh, I, again, once I would I would challenge your premise as it applies to me. Uh, you know, some of those names that you mentioned, you know, that's those are those one off investments. You know, we have an entire investment business globally. And so when, when I look at our involvement in European football, uh, I think you've noticed that we do it in many different ways. And in fact, our Toulouse investment you know, is a is a very successful investment. It's a huge testament to Damien Camoli and Olivia Jobert and the winning culture that the team on the ground there is built with the fans in the community. And Toulouse is a phenomenal city, as you know, uh, with a phenomenal sporting culture. Uh, but you know, we we made that investment uh, uh, with a data analytics premise in partnership with Billy Bean uh, and Luke Bourne. And you know, we have a proprietary analytics business with with a company called Zealous. That's really yep. as advanced, if not more than most of the top clubs in the world. And, you know, since taking control of the club, we've generated a very meaningful net transfer surplus. But for us, you know, we're looking to build a platform company. Toulouse is a great investment. It's been a great partnership. There's more that we can do. We're definitely going to get that team promoted. But I don't look at it the way you suggested as a grind or anything else. Yeah, I see a lot of guys may may, may invest in, in second and third tier, you know, um, uh, football teams in Europe, but I can't comment on that. I know for us, this is very much part of the sort of kaleidoscape of touch points that we will make investments in globally in sport. So I don't see it as a grind. I see it as part of what we do and it's very easy for us and, and we can bring a lot to, you know, the partners that we do it with. Jerry, I, one, of the, uh, one of the other football clubs you've obviously been involved with, which is certainly not a minnow, quite the opposite, is the mighty Liverpool Football Club. You talk about sport and culture. There's probably not, not many um, cultural icons in sport as, as big as Liverpool in terms of that fan base and the passion that those fans have. Not in a financial sense, actually just more in a cultural sense. How's that been? Have you, has that been an eye-opening for you? Has it been enjoyed? Does it remind you of other parts of American sports? Just that, that sense of fan base and therefore potential? Look, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that fan base and for that city and having watched it for many years. And I think our partners at Fenway Sports Group have done a really tremendous job in, in how they have stewarded their ownership um, uh, so, you know, look, it's it's not something that is not new to me. I, I, I've watched it humbly from the sidelines for many years. It's a privilege, frankly, to be a part of it in any way. Uh, and so, you know, like the other things that we've talked about, I'm just going to look to do in this one, I'm going to look to do a small part here and whatever I can do to, to help them win. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, but the great thing about European football is how important the fans are. And I think that going back to what we talked about with the XFL, you know, one of the first things Dwayne Johnson said to me when we were talking about partnering to buy the XFL is he said, you know, I really want to put the fans first. I really want to put the players first. And I just thought that was fantastic. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the thing that European football already has is that the fans are first. I mean, you, the fans are, are your key partner. In, in any of these teams. And so I think it's a privilege to do the kind of stuff that we do and have it be appreciated by the community. Uh, and the community will hold you to a very high standard. That's one thing I've learned across sports globally. So I love that um, because we can always do better. Um, I'm never gonna let myself fall down and not deliver for the people that we partner with. And in the case of, you know, Liverpool and European football, it's, you know, it's the fans. 
that takes us on to European football more in general. And since we spoke, we obviously had the the, the Super League uh, idea, which we won't get into in a, a big way. But, you know, I think the thing that struck many of our listeners last time was, you know, your phrase uh, self-moderation in terms of, you know, the big the big guys having to um, realise, you know, the, the, the culture that they're involved in. And I think that was both diplomatic and very smart and, and, and probably made good business sense as well. But we have to face the reality that market forces are market forces, regardless of how self-moderating we want to be. Let me, let me give you where we are today. British football, English football is in the middle of a, an argument around a, a government regulator and, and which is basically about the distributions of monies to, to the long tail of, of football in England. In Spain, you have got, it's bouncing off the walls between the CVC bid to the league and the JP Morgan league to, to the three big clubs. And I was going to ask you about that, but then I saw something that I think puts the icing on the cake here. And it's nothing to do with uh, European football. It's to do with this big theme in general, big and small, Hollywood and art house, whatever you want to call it. This is the MLB and the current lockout strike and the collective bargaining agreement that's not happening. Here is a quote that I saw. The Players Association has called for MLB to reduce the amount of revenue sharing from rich to poor teams from around 450 million to 350 million. The reason for this position is that the sharing system is based on team revenues. When a team wins more games, it generates more revenue and has to pay more into the sharing system. This constitutes a tax on success and blunts the team's incentive to invest in players. So here you've got the players themselves saying less sharing to the small team it's all going to and it should go to the creators of value are we ever going to buck the market in this whole sports ecosystem jerry because i see the market going to rip it apart well um look i I don't i don't think you're going to get to a situation where it, it it rips it apart i think you know what you're seeing here is frankly not that new uh you're just dealing with bigger numbers and you're dealing in a media world where you know things proliferate and, and it's real time. So most of this stuff has been going on for many, many years. And frankly, it, it goes on in, in our democracy here in America as much as it does uh, in, in sports. So I'm not as troubled by it. I think that there's a level of responsibility. I come back to that, that everyone that is involved in sports needs to um, embrace. And there needs to be a balance. And there's and there's always going to be, you know, in capitalism, there's always going to be this tension and 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 there's always going to be some form of a dynamic between a quote unquote big market team and a small market team. And where you've seen that across our entire society. So I don't know why everyone, to be honest with you, I don't really see this as as troubling as everyone, or at least in the media, makes it out to be. I think there's other questions that should be asked, which is how do we grow the pie? I think if we spend more time thinking about how do you grow the pie, then there'll be much more to go around as opposed to assuming that it's a finite pie and everyone's gotta be scrambling for their their piece of it. And you know, one of the things that we've done at Redbird is we created a company in America called One Team Partners, where we partnered with the players associations of the NFL and Major League Baseball and women's soccer and Major League Soccer and women's NBA. And we created a business that corporatized the group licensing revenue of the collective players. And you know, my view of that philosophically was that when you step back from the tensions that you see in these, in the, in, in these collective bargaining negotiations and everything else, sports is a very simple ecosystem. You've got players, you've got teams, and you've got leagues. And the players can't have a game without the teams and the leagues, and the teams and the leagues can't have a game without the players. So guess what? They're partners. And so all this stress and tension and everything else, I understand it. I'm not naive to it. But at the end of the day, if you start from that premise, look, we're, we are partners. Let's sit down and figure out how we grow the pie together. That's a much better way to go. And so, you know, what we've done with one team is one small example is we've, with our capital and our company building mentality, is we figured out how to grow the pie for the collective players as well as the leagues. And, you know, someone like us can sort of sit in the middle between these, 
these two groups that sometimes clash and bring them together. You should see more of that. And, and my hope is that we will see more of that. And I'd like to be involved more in things like that because this other stuff will come and go, but I, I don't think it's gonna tear it apart to your question. I do think though that we, we're, we're not necessarily asking the right questions. And the right questions should be first starting with a premise that we are partners. So let's just get over that. And then let's go figure out how to grow the pie. And with everything that's going on in, in the world technologically, and in terms of the, how the fans have evolved and how they want to consume this content, there's so much more to be done here that we're kind of, in a little bit, to be honest with you, I feel sometimes that we're sort of missing the forest through the trees. And we're, yeah, you can have these skirmishes and everything else, but that's not, that's not the center of the play. The center of the play is, is how, do we, how do we make this bigger for everybody? Yeah, um, I think on this one, um, I, I take a slightly different view on this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I use that phrase, which is very much an American phrase, if not a Silicon Valley phrase, uh, product market fit. I think there's a theme through all of the questions that I'm asking here, which is that um, the current sports ecosystem, which is a little bit, um, in some ways, we're all equal. Uh, a big team's playing is the same as small teams playing and they're in the same league. I think that Silicon Valley would they probably say that is not product market fit. Uh, younger generations especially are not going to be interested in medium and lower and longer tail uh, content. And that's why I believe that the market forces uh, will demand a product market fit. And, you know, I, I, I want to ask you, you know, uh, in reality, do you, do you really think that in Europe, in European sport, we can continue with this idea that you know we've got to have this totally democratic to use your word ecosystem where everybody can get up and down and relegation when from a financier's point of view the discount that you have to apply to valuations for an environment whether you've got relegation is enormous i know that's a bit waffly but product market fit i just do not believe european soccer has that anymore well, look, I mean, that's a big question, Roger, and, and um, I'm going to be smart about not wading into that full <laughs> head first. Uh, I'm not going to solve that. Um, the, the things that you talk about are real, but at the end of the day, this is still the best content in these markets. Now, the penalties for losing are extreme, and I think that may be why you, con you have this evolution in the kind of capital that comes into that market. Uh, because, you know, the assumption is that you need very deep pockets and a tremendous amount of money to spend in order to win so that you don't get penalized. And, you know, we came together with Billy Bean several years ago. Billy famous for his money ball approach in baseball. Billy is a huge European football fan uh, and has been around European football for close to two decades. You know, Billy's view, and we we did a very deep dive before we made the investment, the investments that we've made in European football. We did a very deep dive, uh, spent three years looking at the market, meeting with lots of different teams and owners and trying to understand it better. And, you know, the thing that Billy convinced me of was that you don't have to spend a ton of money in order to win, that you can be smarter about it, uh, that, you know, you can win and not necessarily uh, sacrifice the cash flow of the team. And that's basically Moneyball. And I believe in that. Now, you, you definitely have an arms race mentality in European football, particularly, you know, with the big boys. Uh, and that needs to moderate itself. Uh, and then, by the way, you know, in the same way we talked about earlier in the, in the podcast that, you know, in sports in general, everybody assumes that it's going to keep going up. Well, the other thing people shouldn't assume is that, you know, everyone, people have infinite amounts of money and they're just going to keep spending and spending and spending. It's at some point there has to be a normalization. There has to be, you know, a value proposition to that. So I'm, I'm a little more uh, sanguine and optimistic than, than you are. Uh, but there's no doubt that those those tensions exist. And it goes back to your point earlier, even in the U.S. about big market, small market. I mean, it, that that exists. The financial penalty for losing is extreme. We, we probably need to figure out a way to, to, to normalize that a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one 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 slightly related question coming back to your, your opening comment about content is now king. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about regional sports networks on the last podcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether they were going to 
managed to keep their position in the cable bundle and cut the cord and how much they would be pushed towards a different streaming or direct-to-consumer model. I think the last 18 months have probably been rougher on the the old incumbent model than we thought. Uh, how are you looking now at Yes when you've got guys like Leo Hendry coming out and saying, I'd be short uh, our, our regional sports networks now? How do you feel about all that, Jerry? Well, Leo was was our partner with the Yankees uh, and the owners of the New Jersey Nets when we created the S Network back in 2001. And, you know, I think what he's referring to is goes right to the heart of of our investment thesis. You know, we created the S Network with the Yankees uh, and with the uh, families that own the New Jersey Nets back in 2001. I've told that story that, you know, we we actually handshook on that deal the day before 9-11 and we had to be on the air that following April. Uh, and, you know, so we underwrote a growth equity investment partnering with, you know, one of the best, you know, rights holders in the world. And that was at a time when no one knew what a regional sports network was. No one knew what, you know, content at that time was really more in distribution with television stations and radio stations and cable systems. So it was really cutting edge. And, you know, we sold that to Rupert Murdoch uh, in 2013. And then we bought it back in 2019. This is the S network. We bought it back in partnership with the Yankees and we reset the table and we did it with Amazon and Sinclair broadcasting. And, you know, we really brought, bought it as a different investment. It's a much more mature company now. It's a, and, and it's a company in an ecosystem that's rapidly being disintermediated by technology and by these changing consumer uh, taste that the fans want to consume content in a different way. So when you look at what we now have at, at Redbird, you know, we are partners uh, with the Yankees and and in, in Yes, again, we also uh, own Ness and New England Sports Network as part of our Fenway Sports Group investment. That's the, that broadcasts the, uh, the Red Sox. You know, so Yes and Nesson are the two strongest regional sports networks, but they're structurally different than the rest of the industry. So when people talk about regional sports networks and when Leo says, you know, he'd short RSNs, I understand where he's coming from. I don't look at Yes and Nesson as RSNs. Um, yes and Nesson. Interesting. Yes and Nesson are owned uh, by the rights holder in a significant way, which is critical for alignment. Uh, they operate under very long-term media rights agreements. Uh, and that is a huge differentiator in terms of what you can do with the with these platforms. These, That's a great point. These are extensions. That's a great point. Yeah, these are extensions of the New York. Like if you take Yes and Nesson, that is their the closest way they can touch their fans. Is the, you know, the fans can come to the stadium and watch the game live. They can they can watch the games through the Yes Network or through Nesson, and the Yankees and the Red Sox own their respective networks themselves under long-term agreements. That's huge. Now, when you start to see sports betting getting legalized in New York, um, you know that's going to be very interesting because that's going to lead to a whole other opportunity and re-underwriting for the fan experience and engagement. And you know what I'm spending a lot of time on in part of these investments uh, is the direct the direct to consumer strategy. So we're going to look to supplement linear with a, with a direct to consumer strategy so that we can meet the fans wherever they are uh, and however they want to consume this content across the games, betting, fantasy, you you name it. And that's the wave of the future. So I, we yeah, may have yeah. we may have we may have started you know the the RSN space. 20 years ago as a growth equity play. We bought back into it more as an infrastructure play. And guess what? If, if I was a betting person, I'd say we're going to find a way to sort of have another round of really interesting growth by virtue of taking advantage of these dislocations and, and challenges. Jerry, you've talked about content is now even more the king, I think you said, and that the fans sit at the heart of all sport and certainly the growth of sport. So we've covered American football, football, cricket, baseball a little bit there are some other 
big sports out there, which I don't know, you may be involved with or thinking about. There's the sports like your badmintons and your table tennis, huge sports, huge fan bases. Can you ever imagine a time where in particularly in other markets in the Far East that you'd, you'd want to, to explore that under that whole, that whole same premise of that engagement and, and, and total immersion with, with fan experience? Yeah, look, I, I think, as I said, you know, um, in the earlier question, I'm not, I'm not uh, proactively looking to invest offshore outside of North America because I can't find any opportunities in North America. I've got more than enough to do in North America. It just is such that sports, because of technology, um, is, is becoming more and more global. And the lessons that we've learned and the challenges that we've overcome here, well, you know, can, can apply, you know, everywhere around the world. At the end of the day, the thing that's most amazing about sports, it is the one convener of people in a very positive uh, way um, around unscripted programming, uh, really going to the heart of you know the human condition. You know all the drama, all the ups, all the downs, uh, and you can never, you'll never beat that. Hollywood has nothing on that. Uh, so you're, you're seen by by some, I think, as a, a kind of bellwether, a beacon for the sports industry, whether that's accidental or not. So in North America, but this is a global conundrum. If you were having a a flat white or a latte with uh, Jay Monaghan right now at the PGA Tour, who's having to deal with what's going on with the Asian Tour, funded with 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 through well, not by Greg Norman, but certainly being the the the, the sort of totemic leader of the of the new way forward. We seem to, there seems to be a battle lines drawing in golf. If you were being a conciliary, what would you be saying to Jay right now? I would be saying to Jay, let's, let's, let's go back to the whiteboard and let's go look at how we can re-underwrite your business. Uh, and maybe, you know, the, the challenge for all the leagues is that things like the NFL didn't start as the NFL, right? They, these things have evolved and they've grown up to be these multinational entertainment conglomerates. And I think it's wholly appropriate for any of them to find capital partners, including themselves and their owners, and look at ways to re-underwrite their businesses, their leagues as a business. Because at the end of the day, the word league probably isn't the right moniker. These are businesses. These are these are Disney's. These are multi multinational entertainment companies, yeah. Yeah. and things you know. And that's 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 a wonderful thing. I mean, that's a win right there. So let's go figure out how to re-underwrite th those with the right capital, with the right people, with the right partners. That's what I would be saying, and that's that's what's going to keep me going, hopefully, for the next couple of decades. Here's the last question for you, Jerry. By the way, this has been really so educational for all of us. It's something really I want to ask you about more than knowing the answer or my opinion beforehand. Everybody's talked for a couple of years about the streaming wars and, you know, how sport can take advantage of all these platforms trying to get, you know, penetration and everything like that. One of the things that I think is is missed a little bit, and I think it's the big opportunity for the next three or four years, is what, what I kind of consider in my own head the blockchain wars. You know, everybody talks about blockchain as if it's one bloody platform. It isn't. Surely there's opportunities for sport to play uh, Solana off against Cardano. Uh, yes. Do you know what I mean, Jerry? Do you know what I mean? And then, you know, you go the whole way and you say, I've got a sports franchise. I'll go on your blockchain platform as opposed to your rivals. And he, I tell you what, I'll pay the athletes in your tokens. You know, that's the whole all-in strategy. Surely there 100%. must be something in that. I mean, look, we're seeing lines blur amongst all these revenue streams, gambling, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, video games. You know, but it's clear that the next generation of the sports fan doesn't just sit and consume a two, a two to three hour game. So there's a tremendous upside from business models that make these more interactive, where fans feel ownership versus just being a spectator. And that goes right to the heart of what you're talking about and so i'm i think it's look like like all these new introductions you're going to have spikes you're going to have dislocations but at the end of the day this is evolution going in a positive direction and i totally agree with your premise and it comes back full circle to you know you've got to deliver a value proposition to the fan and the fan needs to feel ownership uh, it's not just going to and increasingly young fans today they're not just going to be spectators and sit back passively they're going to want to be engaged and and our job 
as partners to rights holders is to figure out how to keep delivering that that premium level of engagement. Jerry, um, an hour has just whizzed past in all of our lives, which um, it seems to have gone in a, in a fleeting moment. And um, we probably need to let you go off to some sort of, I don't know, Floridian nice restaurant eating seafood or something whilst us in Northern Europe shiver in the, in the, in the sort of bestial cold that we're <laughs> living. But so there are two things, one from Roger and I and, and Grant in, in, in absentia to thank you very much for your time. We also would love you to come back in maybe 12 months and having this update for us is, is fascinating. But also to wish you the very best of luck. I think that um, what you are doing within the sports industry and with the common sense that I think we heard 18 months ago about how you approach investment for the good of sport, for the good of the fan, for the good of the game is something that Roger and I particularly admire very, very much, that it's not just about making money, it's about the preservation and the development of sport. So long term, so I think really yeah. on behalf of everyone at Are You Not Entertained, um, wish you um, season's greetings. I think that's the politically correct way to say these things and to thank you very much for your time. That was great. I enjoyed it. And you guys really did your work and research and you asked really great questions. So I, I appreciate it. I enjoyed I enjoyed the dialogue. Thank, thanks, Jerry. It's really, really educational for everybody. And I think it's going to be a big help and a manual even uh, to take us through what is going to be an amazing next year in sport. So really grateful for your time. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye. Well, Roger, I think that was uh, another masterclass from uh, a chap who um, he certainly knows his onions, as we say over here. But um, I just find it so refreshing. I think we are we've seen so much finance coming into sport. We've talked about it. We've tracked it. We've commented on it. He just feels like he's a man who's got he, he, he holds the responsibility uh, of sports investment very, very closely. Yeah, uh, listen, you know, I tried, even even though um, I didn't really want to, but I couldn't lay a glove on him. You know, like he's the Floyd Mayweather of uh, <laughs> sports executive. It's just like a little slide to the left, a little slide to the right. And of course you need that. You know, the, the worst thing about finance coming into any industry is that it can be incredibly cold and incredibly callous. Uh, and you need to show that you're not that, both in words and in actions. And and he certainly does that. Um I think there's a I think there's a whole lot that he's doing absolutely correctly. I think there's a, a lot that he 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 lays down the absolutely correct diplomatic line. Um, but it's very very encouraging that that, that somebody like him is uh, at the centre of the sports industry. It gives us a little bit of a, a safeguard that it that, that it probably will be dealt with correctly. All right, everybody. Um, I think that wraps it up for today. Uh, Giles, thank you for for organising that. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, don't forget to rate and review the show. Um, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter under the handle Entertained R. That's the word R. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan seventy one. And you can follow me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. See you next time, folks, where we've got another amazing guest. Next up, Dan Porter of Overtime. Fantastic.